All right, guys, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there's some in the back window there. I encourage you to take, take your copy of God's Word and open up to the, the 11th chapter of Revelation. Now, normally it's been our custom. We've gone through almost a whole chapter every time. And so um, today we're not doing that, though. We're not going to finish chapter 11. We're just going to be part of chapter 11, okay? So I want to encourage you to uh, follow along today as we're going. If you haven't been here for Revelation, uh, and I noticed a couple new faces tonight, so I'll just kind of give an overview for you real quick. You know, there's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and guys, we are officially halfway through the book of Revelation. That's pretty cool, huh? Isn't that exciting? So, given that it's March, we might be going into Revelation in the summer, so <laughs> we'll see. Um, but if so, that's fine. Uh, we want to be faithful to cover all the text of Scripture and do a good job doing it. So, um, so. Just a brief highlight if you haven't been with us before. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, we see that John is writing to the seven churches, and then he sees the risen Lord Jesus in heaven, a vision of him in heaven. And John has been on uh, the island of Patmos as a prisoner, and God reveals himself to him in a vision. And then he writes in chapters 2 and 3 to seven different churches of his day, and some of them he encourages, some of them he rebukes for their sin, but all of them are churches that God uh, has a, had a specific message for for that day. And then from chapter 4 and forward, John is seeing a vision of things that are happening in heaven and on earth. And the whole text goes back and forth between heaven and earth, all the way through until the end of the book of Revelation. And in this throne in heaven, uh, we see that God rules on his throne, that he's almighty. He is the one who was and is and is to come. We see this about God. And then John sees a scroll a scroll in heaven that has seven seals on it, and no one can open the scroll. Now, a scroll, or, or a book in this case, right, it is something that has a message from God, and no one could open it. And so John, who's receiving a revelation from God, is weeping because that's the word of God, and no one can see it, no one can open it, because there's only one person who can open it, and the angel tells him, stop weeping, look, there's someone standing there that can, and it's the Lamb of God, it's Jesus. And that, who's also called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so they praise God for how worthy he is. And then from there, there's these seals on each one. You know, maybe if you ever had an envelope and you've taken wax and you sealed the envelope closed, it's the idea of a seal. And so there's seven seals, and each seal that comes off that scroll, there's a judgment poured out on the earth. Okay? Now, real quickly, yes, this is the future. This is future judgment we're talking about on the earth. And in God, in his righteousness is judging the earth, and with his equity and justice, he is judging the earth. And so we look at these seals, and there's seven of them that happen. Uh, one is a time of false peace that's on the earth. It's led by someone called the Antichrist. And then after that, you're going to see war, famine. There's going to be people that are uh, killed uh, for, uh, their, for their faith. You're going to see also um, the, the, literally the cosmos, the physical world, completely affected by... Uh, all of this. We're also going to see pestilence upon the earth and so many different things. It's a really, there's a lot I'm summarizing. But essentially, also, there's the seventh seal they get to. So they go through six of judgment, and then on the seventh, when that's opened, there's 14 more judgments within those seven. And so notice how we're following these numbers, seven and seven and seven, right? There's a, there's a purpose to that. It has this idea of completion to it. Remember when God made the earth? How many days did he make the earth in? Seven, right? And so it's this number of completion. And God's judgment is also a complete judgment. And so in the seventh one, there's seven trumpet judgments. The first four have to do with judgments on earth. 
And then in the next, a few of them, like what I mean is judgments on earth, they're all on earth, but judgments ecologically. So the water is affected, the sea, the rivers are affected, the earth and the stars in the sky. Then the rest of them are demonic judgments on the earth, meaning that demons roam the earth in this way as like locusts, okay? Uh, so the text continues. And we saw last week in chapter 10, the angel and the little scroll. And now we get to chapter 11. Remember I said it about chapter um, I said about chapter 10 that this is a parenthetical section. So it's been laying out a timeline, and then it's like that timeline stopped for a minute, and he's trying to describe some things that are happening in the end times. And the things that are happening from chapter 10 to 14 are describing, maybe we would, might say, the atmosphere or certain events within this seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. Okay? So we're going to see here that chapter 15 is going to continue the seventh, the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls judgments, okay? So I gave you a big overview of Revelation, so sorry if you have the glazed look over your eyes, but here we go, okay? So real quickly about this chapter, before we dive into chapter 11, some people say that this is the most difficult chapter to interpret in Revelation. And guys, we're going to get it tonight. Let's do it, okay? Um, so this has to do primarily with whether someone interprets this section literally or purely symbolically. Walverd, one commentator, says that, and this is a, a long quote, but follow along. He says, interpreters who take the symbolic view will indeed encounter difficulties. Wearsby, Warren Wearsby, a commentator, even states flatly, if we spiritualize this passage and apply it to any of it to the church, we'll be in serious trouble. So this exposition of the text regards the terms in, pro, in, the, in the way of prophecy, uh, of chapter 11. These are real people mentioned in chapter 11, real places and events and numbers. It's not symbolic, right? It's not um, some sort of numerology. It's not mystical, anything like that. It's not symbolic. Thus, the great city uh, mentioned in chapter 11, verse 8, is identified as the literal city of Jerusalem. And where's Jerusalem, guys? Where's it at? Israel, right? So the time periods are taken as literal time periods. The two witnesses are interpreted as two individuals, there's three and a half days that take place. Well, that's taken literally as well. You're going to see an earthquake in our text. And there's 7,000 people who die from this earthquake. And these are 7,000 individuals who die in the catastrophe. There's also the witnesses you're going to see in this passage. They die, and they resurrect, and they ascend to heaven. This literally happens. So these assumptions, what they do for us as we approach this text, I wanted to give that to you because as we approach this text, we are, are able to provide an intelligent understanding of this portion of prophecy, even though... The possibility of difference of opinion is acknowledged. That's the end of the quote from Walvoord, and my comments inter intertwined. So here's the main idea of our text today. This is what I believe, the main idea, what the author's trying to communicate through this passage. You ready? God's sovereignty and power is on display in the prophetic plan of the temple and the two witnesses. Okay? This is what I think the text is focusing on. And I'm going to make, give you a concluding statement in the end as well that's going to more apply to you guys. But this is just the main idea. What is... John trying to reveal in Revelation. What's God trying to reveal through John in Revelation? Okay? God's sovereignty and power is on display in the prophetic plan of the temple and the two witnesses. So let's look at chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. Okay? Verse 1 to 3. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Do not measure the court outside the temple, Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So let's go right in the beginning. So John says he's given a measuring rod. Now, what is this measuring rod that's like a staff? Well, if you go to Israel today, you can even see these. I saw these when I was driving along the Jordan River. And by the Jordan River, these tall rods or reeds would grow by the Jordan River. And they could actually re reach heights up to 20 feet tall. They're really massive reeds. And you might see things like that in other, other places around the world as well, around rivers. Uh, but they're really tall reeds. And so he's given this measuring rod. It's the same word. That's like a staff. And he, he's given a command. He's told to get up and go measure the temple of God. So what is this in reference to? Well, I want to pass. I only I printed a few of them. I didn't want to print a ton of them. So you guys can pass these along and look at them. But these are images uh, from a, the ESV study Bible. If you have it, this is in your ESV study Bible on page 1924. Uh, so y'all can take these or I'll give you yeah, this side's bigger. I'll give you that one. Y'all can pass it and look at it, but you're going to notice in this image, unless you have the ESV Study Bible, go and turn to that page, 1,924, okay? You're going to see this picture of the temple, and the temple has these different courts on the outside of it, okay? And in the inner part of the temple, what's called the most holy place in the Holy of Holies, this is the part that is supposed to be measured here. Uh, and you're going, to, you're going to see that clearly because he says, uh, measure the temple of God, but do not measure the court outside the temple. That's all the surrounding places. That's where Gentiles were allowed to go. But in the inner part of the temple, they could not go. So um, these inner parts refer to the temple itself. So the altar is also referenced in this text. Notice he says the temple of God and the altar. So the altar is right outside the temple. And actually Gentiles were allowed to um, get close, but they could not go in. Right. So we see here um, verse 2. Notice what verse 2 goes on to say. He tells them, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. And he gives his reasons. Now, notice his reasons really closely, okay? Because we're going to get into some stuff from the Old Testament that's going to help us understand verse 2, okay? His reasons are this. For it is given over to the nations. So when you see the word nations used oftentimes, and it's not referring to Israel, it's referring to everyone else, that's Gentiles, Okay. So most of us in here are probably Gentiles. Some of you might have Jewish lineage, but we're mostly all probably Gentiles. It's the rest of the nations. And notice what these nations or these Gentiles are going to do. They will trample the city, holy city, for 42 months. So it's going to be under Gentile domination for 42 months. Now, what is the meaning of this picture Okay, that we're seeing? Let's go to a few passages. Go to Zechariah chapter 2. We're going to read all of Zechariah chapter 2. Okay, Zechariah is in the Old Testament. So we can go right on over there. And it's, it's really close to the end of the Old Testament. So if you see Matthew's gospel, you're like almost there. Because it's Malachi, and then it's Zechariah. So Matthew, then Malachi, then Zechariah, okay? So go to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. All right. So, starting in verse 1, notice what it says. And I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Hey, guys, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds really familiar. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. 
For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So we see clearly this powerful picture of someone being told to measure Jerusalem. And there's a whole purpose and plan laid out in this. And we could spend a whole sermon on Zechariah 2. I'm not going to do that. But I want to show you that there's a correlation here. There's an important one. If you go to Ezekiel 40, we're not going to read it. It's a really long chapter. But Ezekiel is told to do the same thing as Zechariah. And what he measures there is, listen here, look here, the future temple. The future temple is what Ezekiel is told to measure. Very interesting, isn't it? Well, Go read that on your own later, because it just gets in a lot of detail. We don't have time. But another place is going to be measured. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible. And look at verse 5 to 7. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You know, I might have wrote, wrote down the wrong verse here. Hold on. So, this is the wrong verse. My bad. So, hold on. It's the same chapter, though. I just wrote it down wrong in my notes. Yes, thank you. Verse 15. That's right. Yeah, it's probably 15 to 17 is what I meant to write. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod, there's our word, a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So we'll stop there. But notice how the focus is on measuring the city of God. Now, what does this act of measuring teach? What is it proclaiming to us, the readers of the text? Okay, this is what I think it's trying to convey. That whatever is being measured by the command of God, so Zechariah follows God's command to do it, um, Ezekiel does, John is told to, what is it doing? That... This demonstrates these, this temple, this city, that it belongs to God, that it belongs to God. He is evaluating that which is his property. It is his own. In evaluating it, he's describing it, and he's showing that he rules it. It belongs to him. And that's really important, okay? We talked about God's sovereignty. That's a really important part of it. So what we learned here is that there will be a physical temple in Jerusalem during this time of the Great Tribulation. This would be the third temple in Israel's existence. So obviously the Israelites would have, would have it rebuilt in the future from now, okay? They'll have it rebuilt, and they would return to their old sacrifices because they cannot make sacrifices now, all right? So if you go to Israel today, you find what's called the, the Wailing Wall, okay? I've been there. I've gone up to the Wailing Wall. I've touched it, and um, it was really funny. I put a Chick-fil-A receipt in there, with, with a prayer request on it. So it was pretty funny. It was, it was a kind of a joke because, you know, Chick-fil-A is God's chicken. And I thought, hey, why not? So, um, so anyway, 
Well, <clears throat> the Wailing Wall is a place where Jews will actually go because that's the closest they're allowed to be on the temple. Muslims rule the Temple Mount because the Dome of the Rock's on top of it. You cannot get up there if you are uh, of Jewish descent, or, or at least Jewish, and, and some, you know, you're trying to get up there for religious reasons. Um, they may not check you if you're like American or whatever, but, you know, the Israelites. So, you know, and not often, they don't always let Americans up there either. Sometimes they don't let anyone do that. But they're really strict about it, the Dome of the Rock. And if you go inside the Dome of the Rock, there's a part of the mountain that's revealed there. And you can see the hard rock of the mountain. And you know why that place is so special? There's a lot of reasons why. Um, because Abraham started to sacrifice Isaac there, and God stopped him, Mount Moriah. And then when the sacrifices were implemented, it was the sacrifices in the temple were right there. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing. And so, so they want to implement the sacrifices back there. That temple mount, by the way, was originally built by Herod. There, I mean, it was built by Solomon, but then the walls there at that time are Herod's walls. You can tell by the architecture. But um, you look at that. It's all destroyed. Muslims run it. And so now the Jews weep and they want to return to it. If you do some online research, you can see some Jews have already started to prepare the instruments that would go in the temple. Tried to build them according to what the Old Testament says. They've, they've woven the high priestly robes, everything. They're ready to go back on the Temple Mount. Will they do it in our lifetime? Who knows? Who knows? Um, but um, really, what's important is during the Great Tribulation that there will be a third temple. Um, but also, it's going to be desecrated. We're going to look at a few passages of Scripture, so be ready to flip in your Bible. We're going to go to a few passages, uh, two in the New Testament, uh, two in the Old. So 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And I'll start at the beginning of the sentence, which is halfway through verse 3. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Listen to this. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then Paul goes on to say, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. So we see really clearly in this text that the Antichrist is going to sit in the temple. And he takes a seat in the temple of God, and he proclaims himself to be God. Guys, that's really key. Now, there was a temple in Paul's day. You know that? And it was destroyed in 70 A.D., but now their new temple is going to be built in the future, and that's when the Antichrist will be there, okay? Our next passage is actually really close in your Bible from where we were, Revelation 13. Look at what Revelation 13 says. We're going to cover this in about three weeks. Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15. It says, And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, we're going to talk about the beast today, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded, by the sword, and yet lived. Um, oh, I skipped verse 13. So it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of people. So that's what the beast does. Okay, he does all that. He makes signs, he deceives people. Now, let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We read this verse many times before, but it's important because this Daniel 9, 27 will be fulfilled in these passages we're going to be reading in the next couple weeks. And it is being fulfilled in this text. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, 
until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. You're like, okay, what does this mean? When Daniel, when he brings up this idea of a week, we can measure it out from, from history, actually, that what he means by week is seven years, okay? What he means by week is seven years. And so this one week, the seven years great tribulation, right? If, you're, if you haven't understood that before, this is where we're getting that. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So for three and a half years, and guess what? Our text today is going to talk about that exact thing. Guys, Daniel was written probably mm, five to six hundred years before Christ came. Okay? That's really important. That's a prophecy. And he's prophesying not to the time of Christ, to a time beyond our own. And it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled. It's pretty amazing. So if we go a couple more chapters forward in Daniel, go to chapter 12. Okay? Everyone go to chapter 12. All right, and then let's look at verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up there, there shall be 1,290 days. So there we have it again, this abomination, this burnt offering. It's going to be taken away, and it's going to make it desolate. going to make it desolate. So now, looking at the end of verse 2, this prophecy is fulfilled from the book of Daniel, but further, prophecy is fulfilled from Jesus' statement in Luke 21, 24. Look in your Bibles at Luke 21, 24. Notice what he says. He's going to talk about there's great wrath on the earth, great distress. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem, here's our wording from verse 2, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times, plural, notice that, of the Gentiles are fulfilled, are fulfilled. So we look at our text, and we look clearly at that second verse. I'm going to read verse 2 again in chapter 11. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. Listen to what this says. It's what Jesus just said. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Wow. Now, you may not have noticed this from the end of verse 1. What's the last four words of verse 1? What's it say? those who worship there. So I conveniently left that out, but I wanted to bring it up right now. I've been talking all about the temple. The temple and the altar he's supposed to measure, but notice he's supposed to measure those who worship there. He's supposed to measure those who worship there. That's a really interesting phrase. See, God cares about how we worship him. Do you know that? God cares about how he is to be worshiped. So much so that when he was offered strange fire from Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus 10, he struck them dead and consumed them with fire because they were offering unauthorized worship to God. They didn't worship God as God had commanded. So God cares about those who worship there. And he is being told, he's telling John, measure them. Measure them as well. And what we really see here, his measuring rod and standard. God has a standard. And we know that not all of us live up to God's standard, right? And even as John is told to measure those who worship there, they don't live up to God's standard. They don't live up to God's standard. We're going to talk about that. We don't live up to God's standard. Even when we try to worship, we try to give our best, we're not going to live up to God's standard perfectly. So, verse 3. He talks about the length of time that is mentioned. That's a three and a half year period. Now, many people have debated who these witnesses are, okay? Some people say it's Israel and the church. Some people say it's Israel and the Word of God. 
But the text seems to be telling us that it's specific people, right? How is the word of God resurrected from the dead, right? I mean, how is the word of God doing the things that the text says it's doing, right? These are specific people. And there's some popular views out there as it relates to persons. Some people say it's Moses and Elijah, okay? So 2 Kings chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but Elijah calls down fire from heaven on these armies, onto soldiers. And he also made it to stop raining for three and a half years. You see that number? Three and a half. So you might think, oh, yeah, this is probably Elijah. The Bible also predicts, listen, that Elijah will be sent before the great day of the Lord comes. Go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Look at what that text says. Malachi 4, 5. It's, you know, Matthew in your Bible, in the New Testament, the next book over, actually the next page probably. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before, listen to this, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Wow, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It sounds like exactly what he's talking about here. Now, also, Matthew 17, 3. Matthew 17, 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what happens. The transfiguration takes place. Jesus, he's in his regular old clothes, and all of a sudden, boom, he's transfigured before the rise and has on a white robe and glories. He's, he's radiant, okay? And before Jesus appear, both Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John are like, whoa, this is amazing. And you know what they do? Peter's like, hey, let's build tents for all three of you guys. And what are you saying when you're building a tent? Let's camp out here. Let's stay here, right? That's what he tried to make happen. But God, that was not God's plan in that moment. So continuing on, though, there's, I want to give you a couple of important objections to people saying it's Moses or Elijah. So think about this. We know Moses died, right? Moses died in the Old Testament. And if we look at our text today, we're going to see that the witnesses die. So does that mean Moses rose again, and then he's killed again, and then he rises again? You could kind of see there might be some problems with that, right? There might be some problems. Could be. I'm speculating. Um, but some people also say that this actually might be Enoch. So we'll talk about that in a moment as well. But also, we want to look at Malachi 4, 5 again. You don't have to turn there. But according to Jesus, Malachi 4.5 is actually a fulfillment of John the Baptist. So which is it? Is it John the Baptist or is it Elijah coming before the last day of the Lord? I say that it could be both. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament that have a dual fulfillment, where like the first half of the prophecy is about Jesus' first coming and the second half is about his second coming. And Isaiah is one of the places where you'll see that actually the most. And actually what's often drawn out, you know, I'm going to use this whiteboard. All right. Um, What's often drawn out is, think about it like this. Oh, man. That works. Okay. So you got two mountains, okay? And you got the prophet here, Isaiah. And he's looking, and he sees these two mountains. We might say this is the first coming and second coming of Christ. But he doesn't see the valley in between, right? That's the way old scholars will talk about the way a prophet sees the future is that Okay, he might have saw the first coming of Christ here, but there's details about the second coming as well that are going to happen in between that space of time between the first and second coming. So that's a way to help you think about prophecy. It's a way to help you think about Isaiah and his prophecies. So my, my, my view, I believe it's actually Enoch and Elijah are the two people uh, in the Old Testament. They're the, one, the, the ones who never died. And now when we look at our text, we're going to see the ones, they are the ones that do die. So Let's look at the rest of the text. And also, I, I want to mention this real briefly. As we get back to our text, chapter 11, notice that they are clothed in sackcloth. Anyone know why someone is clothed in sackcloth in the Bible? You want to take a gander? Guess some gander? What's up? Morning. morning, right? Yeah, they're morning, right? And it's also, because they're morning, 
it's also, also a sign of judgment. So they're, they're mourning because of judgment and doom, right? So that's right. So um, now let's look at the text. Revelation 11, 4 and forward. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire, listen to this, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed and to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, guys, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Those two witnesses are sent by God and they have miraculous abilities. And you know what? There's an unmistakable connection to an Old Testament passage. Zechariah 4. Let's go to Zechariah 4, everybody. Turn to Zechariah chapter 4. And you, we just read that passage in Revelation. Maybe keep your hand there and you can flip back and forth. I'm going to ask you what are the similarities at the very end of us reading Zechariah 4. So here we go. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who's Zerubbabel, guys? You guys remember? So he was the one in charge of Israel in that time, okay? He come back and led the people back from exile, okay? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These, are the sev these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Guys, what are the similarities between Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11? Olive trees and lampstands. And notice how specific it is. Two olive trees, two lampstands, right? We see this really clearly in both these texts. There's an unmistakable tie to Zechariah, right? unmistakable. So if we're going to understand Revelation, we've got to understand these passages that are pointing forward, these prophecies. Now, the angel answers Zerubbabel as to what these are, but he still doesn't seem to understand it until the very end. Uh, the two witnesses in the time of Zechariah, by the way, are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the priest at that time, the high priest at that time. His name Joshua and Zerubbabel, not the same Joshua who wrote the book, because that's a long time in between. So just like those two function in Zechariah's day, they're witnesses for Israel, 
these two witnesses share the same function for God as a prophetic voice to shine in earth's darkest hour of the great tribulation. So let's look at, um, you know, we talked about verse 5 and 6. Notice verse 5 and 6. This focuses on their miraculous abilities to do powers and signs on the earth that no one can harm them because they belong to God, right? They belong to God. And they do this as often as they desire the things that they do. So, but notice what happens to them. They have this great power, but something happens to them. Verse 7, verse 7 through 11. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, that's an important word, is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So notice what we see here. God allows, he permits his witnesses to die. He permits the enemies of God, and specifically, we saw, who's this enemy? You guys notice who the enemy was? It's the first time we've seen him in Revelation. The beast. The beast. Guys, the beast is going to be mentioned another 38 times in the book of Revelation. This is your first introduction to him, so say hello to the beast. There he is. So as we keep going through our text, so notice where he came from. Where have we seen the bottomless pit already? Yeah, so hell is, you know, the bottomless pit. It's, a, it's a, what they, we call the abyss. But you know where we saw it from? We saw it in Revelation chapter 9. Notice, and the fifth angel, verse 1, blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Remember we talked about this star? Notice it's a person because he was given the key. The star was Satan because later the text goes on to say in Revelation 9, verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Both of those words, Hebrew and Greek, mean the same thing. They mean destroyer. John 10.10 says that Satan, the thief, he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. You know that? Satan's job, his desire, is to steal you. His desire is to kill you and ultimately destroy you. And that's the function he's going to obviously hold in the future. The one who holds the key to the bottomless pit, he wants to take you there with him. He doesn't want you to know God or eternal life. But the rest of John 10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what God wants for you, for all of you, if you would just repent and believe and trust in him. So notice, though, as we look at this text, in particular, I thought it was really amazing. Um, if you look at verse 7, the very first few words, and when they have finished their testimony. So notice, there was this particular time on the timeline. They have a task to do. And God knew when it was done. God knew when it was finished. And at that point, God permitted their death. God permitted their death. 
Their ministry was done and God had planned it to be done. I just want to reflect on this for a moment. I want to reflect on this. You know, I think of people in my life that have passed away. And I think, oh man, it's, it's, it's so sad to see that person pass away. You know, they might have had an impact on my life. And you always might think, man, there's so much more they could have done or X, Y, or Z. You might think thoughts like that. But you know, when someone hits the end of their life, you know, God, that's part of his plan, that he knew that that would take place in his sovereignty. And while that might be hard to wrap our minds around sometimes, if we are faithful to run the race with endurance, God works in our life in such a way that when we do the ministries, whatever he's called us to do to serve others and proclaim the gospel, whenever our time is up on earth, hopefully we could say, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. In the same way, these witnesses, according to God's sovereignty, they finished what they were supposed to do, and they died. They died. So the beast here, notice he refers, I want to actually point something out. We're going to cover this in chapter 13, but I want to give you a sneak peek, okay? Walver talks about this beast. Um, the, Walver says, the beast out of the pit is referring to Satan. 13.1, look at 13.1. What does it say? And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This is the world dictator. And then look at the beast rising out of the earth, 1311. Look at 1311. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. You know who this is? This is the false religious leader of that day. So we have the beast of the, of the pit, we have the dictator, and we have the false religious leader. We have these three. And essentially, this is like an unholy trinity. It is a satanic counterfeit of the divine trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to dive into this in weeks to come, but as we introduce you to the beast, I wanted to introduce you to that. And, you know, some of you, this has kind of a, almost become like a cultural moniker a little bit. You know, 666, you know, if you get like, if you buy something at the store and it's $6.66, you might be like, oh, man, I feel like bad luck. Let's add a stick of gum to this so I don't, you know, pay for that, right? People act like that sometimes, right? Um, and it's, they're kind of being superstitious with it, right? It's kind of, kind of goofy, um, but that's not what any of that means. So we're going to talk about what, what is 666? We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks ahead as well. What does that mean uh, in, in here, okay? So let's look at our text. Let's go back dive into what we're talking about. Verse 8, verse 8. So when we look at verse 8, it says, Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the, the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Hey, guys, what city is this? Huh? You guys are whispering. There we go. Thank you, Eddie. Jerusalem. Hey, you guys, you know, God gave you a voice box. You know, this work, right? You know, and I, I don't have a hearing aid. I can't turn it up for your whispers, too. Okay. <laughs> okay. So be confident. Yeah, that's right. It's obvious, right? It's unquestionably Jerusalem, right? Why? How do you know it's Jerusalem? Show me your reasoning. How do you know it's Jerusalem? That's where Jesus was crucified. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela. You spoke up. Thank you. Um, but notice... It says that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, I want to ask you guys, why do you think it's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt? Why do you think? What's significant about Sodom and Egypt? Anybody want to take a gander? Nikki? Okay, large amounts of immorality. I think that's part of it, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So think about this as well. Oh, and you're right about large amounts of immorality. Uh, Thomas, Robert Thomas says it, it suggests utter moral degradation, degradation. But we look at this, it's, it's really figurative. 
Because both of these places, listen to this, both Sodom and both Egypt, as Thomas goes on to say, they had an unmitigated enmity toward the one true God and his people. Notice what we just talked about in church on Sunday. Sunday school, we talked about Sodom. In Sunday service, we talked about Egypt, casting kids into the Nile, baby boys into the Nile. God's pretty sovereign, and that's pretty cool, right? We covered those two things, and then our text this Wednesday is about Sodom and Egypt symbolically. I think the Lord did that on purpose. Don't you think so, guys? So, so we look at this, this allegory. Look, Jerusalem is now at a place of enmity with God because that's the place where Jesus was crucified. So we look at this text, and I think it makes sense that, it, that that's the way the author's trying to draw this out. And notice actually what's really helpful. You want to know how to interpret the Bible? When it tells you to read it symbolically, <laughs> it says it's symbolically Sodom and Egypt. You're like, okay, I know how to read my Bible symbolically. It's telling me right there to do it. Okay. Other than that, you should, you know, use common sense, but see how things can also be taken literally. And I think a lot of this is taken literally. So let's look at verse 9 through 11. Look down your Bibles. What does he go on to say? It says, for three and a half days... Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now, we can speculate about why that might be. It's probably because they were so traumatized or shocked by them that they didn't want anyone to go near them, right? Uh, That could be the case. Um, But also, um, notice how the text continues forward. Um, It says that great fear fell on them. Why did great fear fall on them? Notice what it says. They had been celebrating... um, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. So they left the bodies alone, and next thing you know, everyone's terrified because they're back on their feet. It's clear that they were dead. So really what we see here is that the power of God is on display. That God, listen to this, guys, this is so huge. God is more powerful than death. He's more powerful than death. If death has been a recent reality for you, or coming near to dying, then this, you feel this a little bit. But sometimes if you're a young person and you never had someone die in your life or you've never been close to death, you kind of live like you're immortal a little bit, right? You're kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm just, life's going to keep going on. I'm not going to die. But look, death is real. Some of us, it's a very real reality. And so I want to encourage you really think about this. God is more powerful than death. Who am I relying on to help me defeat death? Think about that. We're going to talk about that again in the very end. So nothing can stop God's work, not even death, right? So what happens next? We're almost done with this text. Let's keep going forward. Look at verse 12 and 13. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, there seems to be a parallel between what these two witnesses did and what Christ did. Notice, when they, they heard a loud voice from, from heaven saying, come up here, it wasn't like the rapture. Remember how I talked about the rapture? It's a twinkling of an eye. It's a loud trumpet call to call believers to heaven. It's an, it happens in an instant. But notice here, they go up to heaven in a cloud, and listen, their enemies watch them. This is something that people will get to see happen. Where's another instance where this happened in the Bible, where someone saw people saw someone go up to heaven. Jesus. Jesus' Jesus's ascension, right? Jesus ascends to heaven, and all these people are watching, and he goes up in the cloud. That's exactly what they do. Notice how similar that is. That's really interesting that that happens. And the reason for that, I think, 
as you can tell from the end of this text, they were so terrified, they gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. They gave glory to the God of heaven. So when we look at this text, another instance, um, by the way, with these numbers, real quick, I think these numbers are literal. 7,000 people will die. It's not figurative. But notice here, they give glory to the God of heaven. By the way, this phrase, to the God of heaven, is only used twice in the New Testament. You know where else it's used? Revelation 16. Nowhere else in the New Testament besides Revelation 11 and 16. Now, it's used a ton, though, in the Old Testament. And you want to know why it was used in the Old Testament? It was to distinguish the God of the Bible from idols and idolatry. Okay? So there's none like God. There's no one like God. I remember one time I was, uh, I was working at Walmart. I was a maintenance guy at Walmart. I don't know how to fix anything, but I got a maintenance job at Walmart. Um, I can fix some things. But anyway, I couldn't really fix store stuff. So I get this job at Walmart, and they, they hired this guy who's from Nepal. His name was Ben Yu. So if your name's Ben in here, it's like just add Yu after Ben. It's Ben Yu, right? Um, his name was Ben Yu. I can't say his last name because it's really long and a lot of letters. And um, anyway, he didn't have a car to get home. I had a car, and I lived right next to the Walmart, but he, he lived like 30 minutes away, um, which makes no sense because in DFW, there's like 30 Walmarts between here and that place. Anyway, so I took him home every day after work, and he would always take me inside his home. He always wanted me to come in his home, and he'd feed me dinner, and he was extremely poor. Um, I almost wanted to refuse dinner, but I started to feel rude after a while, so I, I obliged. We had two little kids. can't remember their names, but they called me uncle. They're like, uncle, uncle. That's what they said to me every time. Uh, and uh, it was a cute time, man. These kids were so cute. And um, I would go and sit at their table, and they would all sit on the floor. And I'm like, why are you guys sitting on the floor? Like, and so I get on the floor, like, no, 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 no. Like, sit at the table. I'm like, what's going on? And then someone told me, well, they believe guest is God. Like, they literally thought I could be a God. You want to know why? Because they were Hindu. And I thought, okay, that's super weird. I'm sitting on the floor. I don't care what they say because I'm not a God. Um, so I sat on the floor with them, and they got used to it after a while. And I remember I was praying. I was saying, God, I don't know how to speak Hindi, I, and I don't have time to learn it. I really want to meet somebody who can speak Hindi. So I prayed for a week, and next thing you know, I ran into a guy at Southwestern, the only Hindi-speaking person at Southwestern. He was a pastor from Nepal who had planted 40 churches in Nepal. And I said, whoa, you know how to lead people to Jesus. Let's go. So his name was Bharat. I think that's how you say it. Um, and it's like B-H-A-R-A-T. And we went together every week to share the gospel with Ben Yu. And we walked from creation to Christ. And Ben Yu would not accept Christ without his father's permission. Really interesting. His father lived in Nepal. Um, and it was a really sad kind of scene and story. But I remember going in his house and seeing above his doorway a picture of their God that they worshipped. And it was really sad. It was just a little idol. A little idol that they had up there. And if you go to somewhere like India or Nepal and you run into, you see Hinduism, they, they worship just about everything. Um, they believe God is in everything. And so, um, and anyway, there's a lot we could go on to there. But the God of heaven is separate from idols. And what's so sad about seeing people worship idols, it's so easy for us to look at people in like India or Nepal and think, man, look at all their idols. But we don't see the idols that are on our streets. That might be in your pocket, right? Your school, or in your bedroom. You see, just because our culture tends toward what we might call secular humanism, in other words, we think there's nothing beyond us. We think just the physical world exists, no spiritual world exists. 
we think, oh, we're just going to worship or value the stuff that we have. And so we worship money. We worship popularity. We worship our iPhone. We worship our car. We worship our job. We worship our ability to play sports. You know, we'll, we'll give value and worship to these things. But you know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. idolatry. That's right. He calls it idolatry. Now, if we look at the Bible and how the Bible talks about idolatry, let's go to Psalm 115. Everyone turn your Bibles to Psalm 115. The text says in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. Hey, the God of heaven, right? And he does all that he pleases. But their idols, the idols of the nations, are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Guys, think about this for a moment. And notice how it describes idols. It's the work of human hands. It's what we craft. Think about it. Why would you worship something that you make, that you're greater than? That doesn't make sense. We want to worship something beyond ourselves. That's why God is transcendent. He's above us, but he also is eminent, meaning he's close to us because he came to us in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We look at this text, though. I didn't read verse 8. Look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them. Think about that for just a moment. What is your idol? Do you have an idol in your heart, something you think is greater and you love more than Jesus? Good, good. But think about this in your heart. Think about this in your mind. If there's something you love more than Jesus, if you're making that thing, you're going to become like that thing you worship. If you worship God, you're going to become like God. You're going to share in His nature. You're going to be loving and and kind and merciful and gracious. You're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 But notice, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What are idols? They're dead objects. Think about it. They have hands, but they don't feel. Eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. You're going to be numb to everything. You're not going to see things right. You're not going to hear things right. You're not going to feel things right. You're not going to say things right. You're going to have a counterfeit view of everything. It's fake. It's not real. Notice where the text goes on. It pleads with Israel. And I I make this plea to you. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He's the God of heaven. Do you worship him? Because there's none like him. There's none like Jesus. Do you worship him? I hope you do. Our last verse in Revelation tonight, Revelation 11, is 
Verse 14, it says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming soon. This is the final phase of the sixth trumpet it's talking about, and the seventh trumpet is coming. We'll cover that more next week. But in conclusion to our text tonight, this is the concluding statement. Fear the awesome power of the God of heaven and nothing else. It's not Jesus plus this idol, Jesus plus that idol. It's none of that. It's just Jesus. It's Jesus alone. We can't mix in our idols with Jesus. There's none like God, and God's not going to tolerate having his glory shared with another. You know that? So if you are an unbeliever tonight, meaning you don't ha- you're not in right standing with God, you are an idol worshiper. You are an idol worshiper. You might worship yourself. You might worship something else in creation. Or you might worship a false god that's in your mind. Listen, God wants you to worship him. There's none like him. So I would encourage you. I would urge you. I would plead with you. If you're an unbeliever, repent and flee the wrath to come by fleeing to the arms of Christ. He welcomes you. He invites you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know that rest? Augustine once said that our our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Is your heart restless because you worship idols? That you don't worship the one true God? That you keep trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world, but once again, over and over, it doesn't satisfy? Well, repent of those idols and flee the wrath to come. If you're a believer, cling to Christ. The world is going to tempt you to fall away. The world is going to tempt you to follow its ways. I want to encourage you, cling to Christ. Fight the good fight of the faith and be faithful to the end and finish the race. Fear the Lord alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for this time together. We thank you for this text. And while it is one of the more difficult texts of Revelation 11, I thank you, Lord, that you're working through your word. And I pray, God, that these students would see the need to worship you alone because you are the God of heaven and you are worthy of our worship. As we saw from our text, you are sovereign, you are powerful, and you are worthy to be worshipped and you alone should be feared. Let that be our response to you tonight, to see your sovereignty and power and your greatness and to respond in worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.